Welcome to the Yours in Marketing Podcast. Hey, it's Blake here. If this is the first time that you're joining us on the Yours in Marketing Podcast, do me a favor. Please go wherever you get your podcast, doesn't matter where, and please review, rate, subscribe to the podcast right now. Well, or after the episode, whichever works for you. We're really looking for your support so that we can build this and make it even more valuable for you. So please rate, review, and subscribe the Yours in Marketing podcast. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. On today's episode of the Yours in Marketing podcast, I was able to speak with Mike Carroll, who is the head of growth at Nutshell CRM. And we had a great conversation just around growth marketing and uh, and sales and marketing in general. He's very knowledgeable, very enthusiastic and energetic. He heads growth up there at Nutshell, doing fantastic things over there. And he had some really great examples and stories that he shared here today. I highly encourage you to listen in. But just to give you the main three things that you're going to learn from this episode from Mike. First off, we talk about how a career in politics can actually prepare you for a career in marketing. Then we move on and talk about creative alchemy. What is it in marketing? And then finally, we end with why sales and marketing should actually be combined for maximum results. So again, please stay tuned, listen in. Without further ado, here is the interview with Mike Carroll. So we're live with Mike Carroll, who is the head of growth at Nutshell. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Nutshell, not too much because we'll dive into it a little bit more in depth later, but kind of give us a brief intro. Yeah, so thank you, by the way, for having me on. I'm super excited uh, to come and talk to you, Blake. My background is a little bizarre, I suppose. It's a, an amalgam of different things that I've done in my life. I've done been a political operative, got a master's degree in journalism, and then after I got tired of doing that, <laughs> right around the time I graduated from grad school was exactly the time that every news organization across the country was cutting 60% of their staff. So it was not exactly what we call fortuitous. Uh, so <laughs> after that, I did the politics thing for a while. And then um, was trying to get back into journalism after about six years of running campaigns from like aldermen all the way up to the to the U.S. Senate. And as it turns out, people in the journalism field don't think that people who've worked in politics can be objective, which is silly to me. (laughs) But that's probably a much larger conversation for a different kind of podcast. (laughs) And then I got into digital marketing a little bit, just doing some freelance writing, met a guy who was trying to start and build an agency. We kind of clicked right off the bat. And so you know, I went from like writing emails from him to eventually helping him like grow and and build his agency and being the creative director and then the chief strategy officer for it here in Detroit. And then after about six years of that, I kind of wanted to like really focus on something. It's cool being on the agency side because there's no place, no matter what you're doing, which will be exposed to like more problems of a different nature over such a short amount of time and as a training ground for being a, a solid marketer or a salesperson or whatever your particular discipline is, like there's no better place to do that. But after a while, it kind of grinds on you and you really want to see your ideas come to fruition. And that's when I left and saw the opportunity at Nutshell. And I've been there almost two years now, or I guess a year and a half. And it's been great, man. It's really exciting, exciting time. Yeah. So let's let's dive a little bit deeper into some elements there because you mentioned you start you kind of started your career in politics after you got your master's in journalism. I'd love to just go through that time briefly and sure. kind of talk about, you know, did you think that you were going to be in politics for your entire career? No. So in like in undergrad, like when I was in college, I, you know, I'm a writer by sort of like trade and passion. And I was in the literature program and studying philosophy. And then my senior year, about two months before graduation, it sort of dawned on me that I was like, man, I'm going to continue to write, but nobody hires novelists. So, <laughs> so you better find something to do, you know, with your skill set. And I kid you not, I was like, I don't really know who hires lit majors. And I was wandering around the English campus one day, like the English building, and there was a symposium and a political operative was there talking about how English majors could leverage their capability for writing to do speech writing. And it was at that point that I said, you know what, that sounds like a, a pretty good idea. I have some reasonable political opinions and I'm passionate about that type of thing. So let me go and check that out. And I just kind of, you know, like anything that you dive into, joined the staff at the Western Herald where I went to school. So became a writer for there, had a weekly column, started studying politics like on my own and then uh, decided to go to grad school for journalism to like continue to do that type of work. Uh, and like I said earlier, when I was at, once I graduated from grad school, nobody was hiring reporters. And when I say nobody, I mean nobody. And as a result, I'd done a little bit of volunteering on the political side. And so I decided, like, well, I'll go do communications work and write speeches and that kind of thing. And uh, the rest was sort of history. It was a I've got lots of crazy stories from my, my years in politics. Uh, <laughs> we could have yeah, I can save one for you if you want. 
Sure. Yeah, definitely. But I guess at the end there, or did you, did you see a definite end? Like you only want to do it for X amount of time or was it something that if it did take up your entire career, you would have been okay with that? When I started, I was just kind of interested in it. And it's kind of like running campaigns is very akin to the startup bug. So if you get that sort of that sensation, that excitement from, you know, from the intensity of starting a company, it's the exact same thing for a political campaign. So I became really addicted to that, that rhythm. You know, you essentially you build like a small business, you know, essentially inside of a couple of months, you run it for nine months to an incredible deficit, which is the fundamental difference. And then, and then it ends and you go do something new. And so I really like that. And so at the time I worked for the governor of Illinois for a little while and, and did some things. I saw myself staying in politics. Yeah. For, for a solid you know career, then it's like anything, I suppose, but more so it wears on you when you start to recognize, I don't know, you know, I don't want to get into too much of a philosophical conversation about politics, but people are not out to help you or us. And like, that's not the objective of, of working in that particular industry. And I just kind of got really jaded by it and decided that, you know what, I can make money doing other things that are a less stressful and be less uh, morally compromising. Let me put it that way. Sure. Before, before I move on to kind of the more marketing side of your career, I'd love to hear if, if you saw in the moment or even just kind of looking back now in hindsight, were there, was there any overlap between the marketing and like when you were in politics and running campaigns, doing those things, what was the impact of marketing during that time for you? Was there a lot of overlap? Uh, there's a ton of overlap. I mean, it's all marketing. And, and so the, it's easy when I say it's easy Take that. Don't take that out of context. It's easy to sell a product, a tangible thing, something that provides value to a consumer once they've purchased it, whether that's a service or you know a T-shirt or whatever. Selling the promise of an idea to somebody that will maybe or may not come to fruition is some of the most challenging, you know, challenging work I think any type of communications professional, marketer or otherwise, can have. And when you when you work on that kind of stuff, it taught me a great deal about how to run layered campaigns, how to you know build awareness around a particular idea. And unlike the corporate work I do now, when I was in politics, like you take polls all the time, right? And so you have a real understanding and a, and a very, very clear universe of people that you're talking to, you know exactly how they're feeling, what motivates them. And then you go ahead and run your campaign and run a poll again. You can kind of see how you've moved the needle or changed their mind. We do the same thing with metrics, obviously, on the marketing side. So I would actually call it exactly the same. You're just selling something different. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess at, at that point then, so after the politics, you, you mentioned you kind of got a little bit jaded by just kind of the way that things were handled in that industry, I guess you could call it. Um, but you eventually yeah. transitioned into being a, in a marketing manager role with the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. So why did you pick the ASPS, I guess is the acronym for that? Yeah, why, sure. why, why'd you decide to go there as your kind of your next step? Wasn't so much a decision as a, an opportunity at the time. So it, a lot of people don't understand what political campaigning is all about, which I didn't recognize while I was doing it. And my parents always, uh, at the time when I was younger, used to give me a whole bunch of crap. They'd say, when are you going to get a real job? I was like, a real job? I have a real job. I'm a political operative. Like, and I do it every eight months and so on and so forth. But with that resume did not translate very well. They didn't recognize the skills. It's almost like coming out of the military in like a strange way. It's like people just didn't recognize that I had acquired any skills to do, you know, regular marketing. And so the nonprofit industry is like a little close to politics in that regard. And then more to the point is one of the, um, the marketing director there that was hired to come into ASPS. Uh, one of my mentors, her name is Karen Craven. I actually worked with her on the political side and she hired me to come in and turn a creative services department into an actual like strategic marketing department. And she wanted someone that she knew, uh, who was a little bit disruptive, which I happen to be for better or for worse. And so, and so she hired me to kind of come and shake things up on a short-term basis. Uh, and I said, that'd be just fine. Cause at the time I was trying to get back to being a journalist, but that was also equally challenging. Got it. Are Are you still trying to become a, a journalist? Do you, is that still something you want to do is, is right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I write for marketing and, and, uh, sure. and, at least keeps my the skill set warm. But yeah, at some point, I, I would like to see myself sort of, I don't know, break away from the marketing side of things, maybe focus on writing again. Of course, it's challenging. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you got to do what you're good at. And not that I'm not good at writing, but I, I've found a particular niche and this sort of like chaotic skill set that I put together has, has lent itself <laughs> very well to to my work as a growth marketer. So 
yeah, at some point, I think I'd like to get back to it, but I don't know if it's going to pay me as well as I get paid now. So. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. For, well, you never know. You know, you could uh, you could come out with a groundbreaking book uh, based on <laughs> the things you learned. There are all kinds of things you could do. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so now then you then you go work for for an agency like you mentioned, and you so now you've you've kind of worked on both sides. You've worked agency, you've done in house, you've worked nonprofit, you've done political stuff. I mean, it's a pretty diverse range of things that you've done and seen in your career so far. But in terms of like the, the in-house versus agency on that spectrum, yeah. what are some of the core differences that you noticed for you and uh, which one did you prefer? Oh, that's a great question. The grass is always greener on the other side, right? So, you know, when you're sitting inside an agency, and I've never worked for a large agency, like, you know, a real mega agency. So I think that's probably a little bit different when you're working for larger brands. Kaleidico is really focused on startups, the financial services industry, and actually the mortgage industry. Uh, we worked with Quicken Loans and some large clients and that type of thing. So it's not like we didn't have that experience. But I think the what I liked best, so there's things about both. So what I liked best about the agency side, like I said before, is like the multitude of, of challenges and problems that you get to confront on a regular basis. There's no environment in which you'll learn faster. And if you're not a fast learner and that's not your thing, like you need time to to analyze and understand things, not that that's bad, but some people pick things up faster than others, then like an agency environment is definitely not for you. Sure. Just because it's very your attention is very splintered at any particular time. So that's both a good thing and also the thing that I came to hate about it, which is it, one of the challenges, and I understand now that I'm on the in-house side with an agency, mm -hmm. is that like there's always this little level of distrust between client and agency. And, and for good reason, like marketers hiring marketers to help them do marketing by its very nature is mm, subversive, I suppose. Or like it's <laughs> it's you admitting that you don't have a particular expertise, which you should do, right. by the way, because not everybody's good at everything. And, and I'd be the first to be glad to tell you like the things that I'm not good at that I hire an agency for. Absolutely. But that being said, is because of that distrust on the agency side, the other thing that's really frustrating is that like your ideas never really come to fruition. At best, 60% of your idea might be executed. At worst, 10% or none of it. And, and so it, that that becomes really hard. Mm -hmm. On the inverse side, on the you know in-house side, that's what I love about it. I'm in charge. You know, obviously we have a leadership team and we work together collaboratively, but at the end of the day, what the strategy for our marketing and sales at Nutshell falls on me and whether it works or it doesn't is also my responsibility, but at least I get to have an idea, execute a strategy to its logical conclusion and see whether or not it's actually going to work or not. And often on the agency side, you don't get that. So that's what I love. I love the focus about the in-house side. And the flip side of that, of course, you lack resources always, no matter what size company you are. You always want to do more than what you have, you know, the capability to do. And so from time to time, resource constraints are harder on the on the in-house side. And that's a little a little frustrating. On the agency side, you can ask for more budget. And if you're working with clients that have it, then they'll spend it. But, you know, you have many competing priorities on the in-house side that have to be sort of like weighed and managed. Sure. Yeah, there's certainly a totally different ends of the spectrum there, but very, very cool to be able to speak to somebody that actually has experience on both sides. Um, you mentioned in there that specifically with the agency side of things, if you're not a quick learner, you're you're going to kind of get weeded out. On the inverse, on the in-house side, you do sometimes have to kind of admit when you're not totally up to up to standards of where you need to be on a, on a particular thing. So if you have a skill set that's not all the way there, uh, maybe you know, you're, you're going to have to outsource or, or learn that new skill. So I'm, I'm just curious, what are those things that maybe you feel like are not necessarily your, your core skills? Yeah, absolutely. So PPC would be like one of the first ones that would come to mind, right? So I understand AdWords. I understand pay-per-click advertising. I understand it's strategy, ad targeting, all that kind of stuff. It's conceptual strategy that like makes sense. And I have good ideas that can be executed. But as far as the, like the technical nature of managing that platform, no mm -hmm. way, dude. <laughs> I got no time to like, you know, be spending hours upon hours, you know, building pro programmatic, you know, like bidding structures and all that kind of stuff that really make you squeeze the, you know, squeeze your PPC campaigns to the, to the utmost. And so I definitely outsource that, you know, I would, I'm even AdWords certified and I won't even touch my own AdWords account. I'll look at it, but I won't, <laughs> sure. I won't touch it. Well, that, that's that's really interesting, though, because so you're you're a self-proclaimed creative alchemist, and I will ask you to explain that. But I also I think that it's interesting that you're. I, it seems to me like just based off the personality and the things that you've done, you would prefer to be more on the creative side than on the analytical side, which is kind of what you're talking about with the with the technical thing there. But I, I guess 
I, explain to me what is a creative alchemist? Why do you consider yourself that? And how, what does it mean in regards to growth marketing? Absolutely. I think it's a great question. And I wonder sometimes that I put that in my LinkedIn profile and people read it and are like, what, dude? You sound like a clown. But uh, <laughs> it's a hard time to describe. So what I'm referring to, of course, is like the sort of very diverse skill set that I've managed to put together where from analyzing polls to creating videos and writing commercials and speeches and all that kind of stuff is that I've I've built a background that allows me to look across all the disciplines that are required to execute any type of communications or marketing strategy or campaign and like know what to pick and and put together so i can put all the pieces together i know which experts to hire for you know for a particular thing but the overarching vision is, is where the creative alchemy comes into right because any type of marketing is really a, a combination of science and art put together sure there's the there's all the analytics you can look at, but at the end of the day, there's usually a usually a gut feeling or somebody's intuition that is driving or conceiving a campaign. So I'm a, I'm as comfortable dealing with spreadsheets and looking at engagement numbers or checking through our activation rates or you know looking at the funnel from a, an analytical perspective as I am sitting in a room for to brainstorm like how are we going to you know write and create our next commercial and and so I like the creative side better. It's definitely where I flow easier, I suppose. I've had to teach myself the analytics, but it's equally fascinating because like underneath those numbers is human behavior. And and now you're back to creativity again. These things are, are not predictable, but they're, I guess, understandable. And and using numbers to do that is a great way to do it. But at the end of the day, you know, what did Mark Twain say? Or not Mark Twain, who said, um, you might know this, who said you can torture numbers until they tell you what, you know, what you want them to tell you? No idea. Uh, I can't remember who said <laughs> it, but it's a great quote, right? Because like, you know, Twain said lies, lies, and damn statistics. And so the point being is that like a number can tell you two things and where the creative side comes mm -hmm. in is like, well, which one of those things is true? Is it correlation? Is it causation? And, and so that's where I see these things coming together. And that's why I say I'm a creative alchemist because it kind of takes all these elements together and I've worked really hard to, to stretch myself to learn things I'm maybe not supposed to learn. And each time I do that, I get better at my job. Mar Marketing is definitely one of those career paths where I think maybe more than most other, if not any other career, you really have to be balanced on the creative and analytical side. Like you, you can definitely lean one way or the other, but you can't really get away anymore without having both of those, at least at, you know, one at a 30%, one at a 70% or something like that. It, it's kind of, it, it's, it, it can be a little bit intimidating, especially for marketers early on in their career to understand, like, I think more on the SEO side, so I'm more creative, but you kind of need to know the analytics behind it or else you can't prove value or you can't measure things. But do you feel like that balance is needed on the sales side as well? Do you feel like to be a great salesperson, you also need to have a great balance of creativity and analytics? Or do you think it's more analytical? No, I think I think it's a balance of both. So I don't I view sales and marketing people and I agree 100% with what you're you're saying. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough line to, you know, to walk between the two because it, and that's why you have specialists in each place, right? And like you need to know how to like flesh out your team in a good way so that you have that completely right brain person versus your completely right left brain person and get them to work together in some meaningful way. But to your question about sales, I think it's also an equal balance. The creative EQ side of sales is perhaps almost more important if you're a frontline sales rep. Your ability to establish rapport, create a relationship, establish trust, and then push a sale forward is the most important thing that you do all day from a transactional nature. However, if you want to be a truly exceptional salesperson, understanding how to measure how you build those relationships, the different tactics you leverage to establish trust, to quantify it and then measure it on the other side and test different things, well, now you're really cooking with gas, right? Because if you can if you can come up with a framework or a system for your almost your personality, like your selling style, uh, then you can scale it and teach it to other people. And that's definitely like what the best sales influencers, you know, on the web have done, right? Is they've they've done that. I was, remember I was at a conference once listening to um, a gentleman named Joel Rackham, and I can't remember the the company he works for now, but he's he's a pretty large influencer on the sales side. And he was telling a story about how he started out, like his first sales job ever was selling cell phones at a mall kiosk. <laughs> and I thought to myself, 
Fantastic Man, I job. <laughs> yeah, like I can't think of a harder thing to do. <laughs> the only thing that was worse is I used to work for US Perg, Public Interest Research Group, where you know you those are the people with the clipboards that come around to your neighborhood and ask you to give their credit mm. card like at the door for the environment or whatever else. So I did that, and that's a sales job. I don't care what anybody says. Like you, you, you know, yes, it's a feel-good thing, but it's who's going to hand me your credit card like standing at the door? So, yeah. But when he was telling that story, I was like, man, what a crappy job. But then he went into this whole thing, and this is why he's awesome: is that he started to document and understand like the different phrases and and tactics he was using to like get someone's attention in the mall, and then scaled it, and then managed six or seven of these, and you know, and so on and so forth. And then he, you know, he got to the point where he is today, where he's the VP of like a very large consultancy doing that kind of thing. But yeah, if you don't have one or the other, you have to learn how to build that skill. I think it's easier to build the analytic skill than it is to build the creative skill. I I think I would agree with that. But and then it kind of takes us a little bit further. Obviously we're we're going to get into the reason that your title is the head of growth, not the head of marketing sure. or the head of sales, but this kind of feeds into that. It it if you think about somebody starting off early in their career as a marketer and understanding like maybe they're starting out more analytical and they know that they to really get to the next level to stand out, they need to add that creativity in there. That can be a difficult difficult jump. But then when they get to that point, knowing that they kind of need to start adding that sales repertoire in there as well, because now we're at a place where account managers and, and people like this really need to know how to sell ideas and beyond just, you know, it's not always about selling a product, but sometimes whether you're a manager or a specialist, you kind of have to sell strategy as well. And you, you get to a place where you have to be able to do all of this. It can be so overwhelming. So what, what would you tell a young person that is feeling overwhelmed by constantly having to level up and actually moving from, okay, I'm a marketer, but now I have to add sales skills. What would you tell them? I would tell them to focus on if they're not good at it already, because and it'll sound strange, but focus on learning how to write better. So it, it, writing to write is to think for, for one is to take what's in your head and put it down on paper and then mm-hmm. put it in a logical fashion. And then an entertaining fashion is, you know, is an incredible skill to have. And when I say focus on your writing, like I'm not expecting anyone to be Hemingway. Like that's not that's not the objective of this mission. But your objective, what you can learn how to do is how to write like you talk and, and then certainly how to improve your copywriting skills. Because that is copywriting is a skill. It's not a, you know, there's art to it. Don't get me wrong. Like not everybody's Ogilvy. But the but that being said, it's something that you can learn. So to the young marketers out there, and it's funny that you asked that because my niece, and this is hilarious to me because this, this stuff didn't exist when I was in college. And I, Blake, I don't know how old you are, but when did you graduate from college? Well, I still haven't graduated from college, actually, but I'm 26. Oh, nice. I love it. Okay, great. That's <laughs> awesome. I got a buddy that has done the thing. I think college, it's a different conversation, being outdated or whatever it is. But yeah. she's going to college and she wants to, yeah, it's definitely not a requirement, by the way. So the For sure. The, <laughs> but she wants to go to school and my sister like gave me a shout and said she wants to study digital marketing. And I said, study digital marketing? Like, Why would you go to college to study digital marketing? Like, You can't sit in a classroom and learn PPC. The only way you're going to learn PPC is by like running a PPC campaign or like, you can't learn social marketing by sitting in a classroom. You got to be on Facebook and engage people and so on and so forth. And the, the point I think I'm making is that the thing that isn't taught anymore is that all these technical skills, which you don't have to pay a bunch of money to go and learn. There's a million courses online to teach you whatever you want to know is on the internet. It's an amazing thing, obviously. But the core of what you do across all of those things is your ability, like you said, to sell ideas, whether you're talking about writing a presentation for your team internally or creating a campaign to go out into the general public. And the core of all that is writing. So I would tell a young marketer to focus on their ability to write. Very interesting. We've we've had several copywriters on the podcast just because I, I think it's so important to hammer that home as well. Something that I've personally worked on. I, I was a strong writer throughout all of school, but never really... I've never really made the step to actually apply that professionally until recently. And it's, it makes such a difference just in the way that you're able to think about things. Even if you're not writing about marketing or writing about the things that you're trying to get better at, it just helps you think differently, which opens your mind to learning maybe a different way, which may be all you need. Um, I, I know that that's definitely helped me. So very, very interesting. But so moving on to kind of how marketing and sales melt together you're kind of the perfect person to speak on this because you're out there evangelizing for people to kind of follow the model that you now have at Nutshell, which is you're the head of growth. You're not the head of marketing, head of sales. You're the head of growth, which encompasses both. And you've been pretty vocal about the idea of just killing off 
the idea that sales and marketing should be separated altogether. So I want you to make your pitch for why you think that is. In a digital landscape, everyone views the funnel as like this linear thing, right? A top to bottom scenario. But the but that makes like one very large assumption about intent on behalf of your audience, which is the most challenging thing to predict is like, okay, yes, they're reading this piece of content or they're engaging this page in my website, or maybe they've even called into sales to ask a question. But to understand their actual intent is, you know, even in a conversation can be hard. Sometimes people are guarded. They don't want to be sold to, you know, whatever that, you know, whatever it might be. So what, the reason why I say do away with the siloed approach is because your customer decides where they are in the funnel. So your team has to be agile enough to respond to them at any given moment by either sales team. Or, so I'm going to use team in like two different contexts, right? There's the growth team, which is like the overarching team. But then obviously you have specialists, just like um, in the last article I wrote about it, I kind of use a military analogy. Like a, a SEAL team can do whatever you want them to do. They can jump from 30,000 feet in, a, in an airplane. They can blow up a building. They can sink a submarine, like whatever is required. But each member of that team still has a specialty. Somebody's focused on communication. Somebody's focused on weapons, explosives, so on and so forth. So same thing goes for the growth team. It's like you have sales specialists for sure. You've got marketing specialists, but really they're one and the same. So because someone at the top of your funnel who's engaging top of the funnel content, like we do, if you go to our blog and on certain blog posts, we actually use the sales chat that pops up at the bottom of the blog posts. So we're going to try to capture an email address because we figure one of those posts would be like, you know, top 10 CRMs that integrate with, what do you call it? Integrate with uh, QuickBooks, for example. Someone's reading that article on intent. Yes, it's at the top of the funnel because it's on our blog and they might just be interested in it. But also chances are pretty high that like they're in the market for a CRM. So why collect an email address? Why just nurture them? Why try to like push them down this linear funnel? Instead, why not just skip them ahead to have a conversation with a live salesperson right then and there? And so that's just like a tangible example of that. So if your customer is deciding where they are in the funnel and they can jump from any one from any place in it they want, they might be at the very bottom talking to sales, and then they disappear for six months and there's consuming your content on a regular basis, makes the sales and marketing marketing team a necessity to be working together at all times. The right hand knows what the left hand is doing. They're they're having a better understanding of you know of the state of mind of the their customer at any particular point in that funnel. I'm a little all over the place in it. I'm sorry. I, I I should put no, this in. Good. I should put this in like an elevator pitch, right? Like I should have a strong. <laughs> if I was on the agency side, I'd be slapping myself right now because I should have been able to pitch this to you inside of forty-five seconds or not. But the, but the other point I want to make is that like nobody talks to customers more than your salespeople or your support team, for that matter. But like, but really, it's your salespeople because they talk to way more because it's their job to to achieve a volume of outreach or, or, or contact. And so nobody understands the mindset of your particular audience better than your salesperson. But but too often, the marketing team, when they're siloed off, look at those as like anecdotal feedback. Oh, it's just a one-off. You know, we're not counting. It's not, there's not a number behind it. And that's a, that's a position that I say people should do away with. That anecdotal feedback, if you hear something enough, you're going to understand a trend very quickly. And if you feel like it's a trend, then it probably is. You know, is there a chance that the numbers are going to tell you something opposite? Well, sure. I mean, this isn't an exact science. But so my larger point is that the marketing team has so much to learn from the sales team. And then in the inverse, your sales team, who's always transactional, always focused on the thing that's like right in front of their face, has a hard time doing what I was describing before, which is like designing a test and measuring it and then feeling comfortable like, oh, okay, I've tried that for long enough and this worked at this level or this rate of conversion and now I'm going to try something else. And that's where the marketing team comes in because no one's better at testing and quantifying and measuring than your marketing team, or at least that's the way it, it should be. And so these two things together is exactly what you talked about in the beginning of the podcast. That is the right and the left-hand brain of of your growth team. And, and each sales and marketing person occupies a little bit of, of either side. And, but, and it's not enough to have them just like talk once a week. And that's, I think, the mistake that people make. They talk about sales and marketing alignment a lot. Like, great, we'll meet once a week and that'll solve the problem. But they have to be the same team and it has to be them collaborating together. The, the sales team is going to collaborate on, on marketing campaigns. The marketing team is going to help them write cold emails. And if you find them working together and then taking ownership of the sales together as a team, then everybody gets to celebrate. And, you know, you don't have this sort of like the maligned sort of, uh, I guess, 
foundation where you know sales hates marketing and marketing hates sales for all the reasons we know we know we know why <laughs> yeah no for sure was was this was this the structure of the teams the sales and marketing when you got there or is this something that you actually kind of built out so i can't take credit for it they advertised the position as head of growth and when i met with joe malcoon who's our ceo and andy who's a co-founder and our cto they had this idea for a head of growth before i got there and when i interviewed for the position they said, you know, what kind of sales experience do you have? And at the time I said, well, I mean, a lot for myself. I sold everything for my agency. Like I was the chief salesperson there. I've had other like direct sales positions, but I, but in full candor, I've never led a sales team. Like I'm not a pure sales leader in that, in that regard. So I will have some knowledge gap to learn there. But on the marketing side, I think is, you know, where I find that to be, obviously that's where I come from. So that wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't a challenge. But at Colatico, at a lead generation agency, and for those that are listening that work at lead gen agencies, if you're not doing this, I highly recommend that you do. We worked more with sales teams than we ended up working with marketing teams, because often we were coming in to fulfill a role that the marketing team couldn't do or that was demand gen that they didn't have the capacity for or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to know is, like, what are the quality of the leads coming out the other end? Because that was how we proved our worth. And from an agency perspective, like, you're the dog that always gets kicked first, in any scenario, right? It's easy to blame the agency, which is fine. That's the, that's the way of the world. I'm not mad about it. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but you know, that being said is that the marketers would say, well, we're sending leads. And the sales team would say, like, the leads are crap. And like, well, okay, well, let's figure out why. Is that because you're not closing them properly? Or is that because you're not following up? Or is that really shitty leads? And so we worked with a lot of sales teams. So I lent that experience. But no, I can't take full credit for like the idea of the growth team. It was definitely Joe and Andy's and they've let me come into Nutshell and, and make it my own. Uh, and I've hired both salespeople and marketers uh, since we got here. And it's, you know, we're learning as we go. It's uh, it is a, an experiment in progress. Definitely. What are, what are some of the, like the honest difficulties that you face so far from having just a single growth team? One of the challenges, because we're a small team at Nutshell, mm-hmm. so one of the challenges for sure if you're going to try this, particularly in a startup environment, is you're going to have one person, and in this case me, in charge of both sales and marketing. It is a real challenge, by the way, to balance your priorities and your focus, simply because it's hard to jump in and out of like these two tactical headspaces. While they're connected, the day-to-day reality of things, of course, is that what you do on the marketing team from a day-to-day perspective and what you do on the sales teams are fundamentally different. And so when I first got here, I wanted to work my way from the bottom of the funnel up. And I know I just went into this whole long diatribe about how the funnel <laughs> is not like a linear thing. But at the same time, the bottom of the funnel is the bottom of the funnel. When you've got an actual sales lead, you have to close it. And so I spent a great deal of my first year at Nutshell working on our sales process, working on you know enable, sales enablement content, and just getting that down to a formula where it could work. And, and in order to do that, I actually joined the the sales team myself as like a BDR at first and, and made qualifying calls. And then, okay, once I figured that out and like felt I had a good formula for that, I hired somebody to do that job. And then I was an AE for a little while doing demos and that kind of thing. And like, okay, now we're improving that process. And I moved on from that. So I've kind of been working my way through each role on the growth team to make sure that I understand how it fits into the larger puzzle. Uh, mm-hmm. And that seems to be working pretty well. But of course, that's that's that can be slow and that can be hard. So if I could wave a magic wand today... I would be the head of growth and then there would be a, a sales director or sales manager, whatever you want to call it beneath me. And then probably another counterpart on the marketing side that were required to work and collaborate together. But, but leading up to me to kind of do the overarching strategy, because I don't have enough time to, as they say, work on the business. I'm working a lot in the business. So that, that, that's the, the primary challenge. In a large organization, I think ego is going to be your primary challenge. Well, I haven't <laughs> experienced that yet. I would imagine that if you were to go to a large company where you've got a sales director that runs a team of like 100 plus or 500 plus or whatever it might be, to tell them all of a sudden that they're reporting to a marketer, which is essentially what I am, or your head of mm-hmm. growth, you might have experience more on one side or the other. You're going to get that animosity from either team. And so you need a pretty dynamic leader to bring those people together and make them recognize that, like, no, 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 if we're all rowing the same boat and we're all measuring ourselves by the same metrics, by the way, we're going to grow much faster. And I, I find that to be the, the case. You, you kind of answered my, my next question a little bit already, but just talking about through that experience of you actually going on being a, doing biz dev and being an account executive and actually getting into the weeds there a little bit, other than that, learning the sale, you mentioned like the sales gaps that you might've had in terms of knowledge that you would need for this role. What else did you do to actually become better at the sales side and to really learn it? 
so I read. I read everything I could get my hands on. I found the, I found sales influencers that I thought both matched my particular selling style. Because again, like as a personal seller, or like you can call me a frontline seller, I suppose, or a sales rep on the agency side. I mean, it was my sole responsibility to go in and pitch and sell every day. And and for six years, there wasn't you know, more than two or three clients that I wasn't responsible for closing. And so, so I had a style, I had, I had a sales, I definitely have an approach to sales, like how I choose to do that. It's consultative in nature. It's about solution finding, which I'm not the only person that does that, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so I went out and found sales influencers and kind of put them in two buckets, the ones that agreed with me. And then I, I, you know, then I wanted to see what they thought about process and all that kind of stuff. And we were pretty much aligned. And then in the, in the opposite faction, I found like your boiler room guys, like, you know, like your Stellies of the world or whatever else, you're really hard hitting churn them and burn them type of sale, like that mm -hmm. more of that tradition in sales. Cause I wanted to understand not only the mentality of it, but also like how it differed from my perspective, my approach and like what I needed to borrow from it. And so, and so all of those influencers disagreed with everything I said. Definitely. <laughs> and, and so I still sell the way I sell and it works just fine in a nutshell. We've more than double our activation rate over the last year. So like I'm comfortable with the way I do it, but it was really helpful to, find those little tiny tweaks. So I read everything I could on the internet. I did not read books, oddly enough. And I, I do read books on a regular basis, but I did not like pick up a sales book and read it. I, I guess I'm, all the information that are in those books are in bite-sized pieces on the web. So like consume sure. them in bite-sized pieces. And I think the combination of doing and learning at the same time is what makes that work. You can't do one, like just one or just the other. Like you, if you learn something, then great, then go put it in practice and see if it actually works in a tangible or, you know, or a real, you know, real environment. And, and without that component of it, I don't think you can learn things very quickly or very well. Uh, that's, that's good advice for marketers too. Actually, you know, learning, looking at blogs, reading books, whatever, but then also pairing it with hands-on experience is kind of the way to go. Mm -hmm. I, I'd be curious to know how customer service all fits into the this growth team because obviously sales and marketing are more about driving new business. Customer service could be perceived as retaining business, I suppose, but ultimately customer service is also about just making the most out of the business, making sure your customers feel valued. And that is a big sales tool. So where, where does the customer service team kind of fit into what you're doing? So our head of uh, customer experience, Catherine, who's also awesome, by the way, I love working with her. Uh, we've got a very close, like collaborative working relationship. It is a pretty blurry line, particularly for, for Nutshell. I mean, I imagine it's like this for, well, maybe not actually. So I'm just going to, I'll just speak for ourselves. But it's a pretty blurry line for us at Nutshell, because once you start a trial with Nutshell, we essentially treat you like a customer. So your experience from a sales perspective and a support or success perspective, as we call it, customer success, is almost I identical. So the, the sales team's responsibility at Nutshell is not to just sell the idea of the end state of what your business is going to be like. Sure, we, we do that. But we find the best way to do that is actually to get into the product with you and help set up your sales pipeline, give you best practices, walk through like why territories are useful to you or, or which custom fields you should be tracking and like all that kind of stuff. So and then on the, on the flip side of that, our success team does also that. Yes, there's technical support. How do I do X, Y, Z? This is broken, et cetera, et cetera. But really, they do an awesome job of being, you know, strategic leaders for, for our customers and letting them know, not again, not just best practices for the tool, but the things they learn from other customers. So they're definitely separate teams and they have separate goals. The success goal is retention plus expansion, right? So moving people from our starter package to pro when they're ready, obviously helping them grow the team, maybe using Nutshell to not only do just frontline sales, but maybe they want to bring on your account managers and manage your longer term relationship. So expanding out into the organization with the tool a little bit as well. And that, that's what the success team is really responsible for. So we just try to keep in touch from a message perspective, from a like how we talk about things. And so we're always communicating the same expectations across the, the customer journey, but it is a little different. And it's Catherine and I were talking not too long ago about whether or not it all needed to be one team, all of it. Mm. And we're not ready to make that leap per se, and I wouldn't be ready to lead a customer service team. I would not feel comfortable <laughs> doing that, you know, so I don't know if I would recommend that to anybody, but you could try it, <laughs> of course. But I think as long as those two people are, are collaborating well, mm. then, then that's okay, because the mentality is different for both teams. I will say that, because our trials sure. can talk to support, and I love for them to talk to support because they get a chance to experience what their life will be like as a nutshell customer. 
However, support's main objective always, or success's main objective, is simply satisfying the need of that customer at that particular time. Obviously, in a sales capacity, like your ultimate goal is to close the deal. And I don't want to, I don't want to be mistaken. Like that's that's an important objective, right? Like yes, we can be consultative, we can be honest brokers, we can do, but like you got to drive revenue. So at some point, you got to ask for the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I are are you a fan of fun facts? Yeah. Because I, I have a fun fact for you. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. So there's a recent survey out there. It showed that, so that they surveyed salespeople and marketers and they were kind of just like flipping the script on them and asking them what they think of the other and their perception of the other. And so this survey in particular showed that 33% of salespeople that were interviewed believed that marketing knew what they needed from the sales team. So only a third of them. But 60% of marketers thought that they knew they they knew exactly what the sales team needed from them. So marketers felt so much more confident in their sales and what they needed from sales versus, you know, salespeople totally the opposite. What do you think is happening there? Arrogance. <laughs> so, so as a marketer, <laughs> as a marketer, I can kind of, you know, I feel comfortable being self-critical in this regard. You meet marketers all over the place and my content director and I always chat about this and it's fun. Like 90% of marketers are failed artists in some way, shape or form, right? Like, you know, let's all be real with ourselves. We all had other ambitions <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then sort of, you know, fell into this thing, found out we were good at it. And, you know, not everybody gets to to be an artist, a filmmaker, a writer, you know, all those types of things, or, or maybe you don't try hard enough. Again, different, different conversation. But the, but I think honestly, that's, that's an arrogance thing. Marketers are kind of built and bred to make some pretty large assumptions about what moves and influences large amounts of people. And when you do that well and it works, I kind of think it seeps into your mindset that like you're somehow, I don't want to say clairvoyant, but that you have a window onto the human condition that others may not. And as a result of that, when someone asks you, do you know, you think you know what the sales team needs from you? Well, of course your answer is, well, yeah, I know what my customers need. I know what the sales team needs. I know what argument needs to be made. You know, that's just kind of like the marketer's dilemma, I suppose, is that like you're kind of asked and required to be a little bit of this all seeing eye and be creative with how you communicate with people. So yeah, I think it's, I would, I would just drill it down to like general, general arrogance, which I guess is that, is that sad? I don't, I, <laughs> I, don't I guess know. I, I guess you could also you could consider the flip side of that with if only 33% of salespeople believe that marketing really knows what they need from them then maybe they're the ones that are a little bit arrogant in terms of like not having any confidence whatsoever in marketing. So I, I think yeah. it's like it's telling on both sides. I think it both sides it's pretty just like either way it's you're looking at it, you're like they both think that they're better than the other according to this survey really. I, I agree, and I think that's where the competition comes in because, of course, your marketers come into this, the equation. They're like, "Wow, I, I drove. We built four campaigns last month and drove a thousand leads. Like, let's see you do that, right? Which is like to move these things on mass." Whereas the salesperson comes in and is like, "What are you talking about? I, I, I closed one point two million dollars worth of business. Like, what did you do for me?" And of right. course, <laughs> neither of you exists without the other. Like, it just doesn't. It doesn't work that way. I think the you're right about the fact that salespeople are definitely arrogant because their manipulation, if you want to call it that, and I'm comfortable doing that, is sort of on a on a very individual level. It's a little more of the con man, Wolf of Wall Street. Like that's where the bravado comes on the on the sales side, whether they be female or male. By the way, it doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't matter. All the I find personalities amongst female sellers and male sellers to be kind of identical, which is which is hilarious. It has nothing to do with gender and so much about attitude and approach <laughs> to life. Sure, but yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean. But I would, in this instance, though, given the way that the question was posed, I would say that the salespeople are more right than the marketers. Most likely, and I, th- I think more more often than not, they're both around like thirty three percent. That <laughs> yeah. in reality, that they know what they're doing or they know what the other team needs from them. But it's just just funny that perception that marketer. It also kind of speaks to the idea. I think that marketers, like you, you mentioned this as well. We really self-aggrandize or aggrandize our campaigns and things we we always kind of exaggerate because that's what we need to do to be successful is exaggerate reality so it's very interesting that survey but to to kind of follow up on that do you think that the average marketer is better at selling or do you think the average salesperson is better at marketing 
Oh, I think you, if you were going to like switch teams, a marketer is going to have a way easier time. And I, I don't mean this to be disparaging to my sales counterparts and brethren the world over, because what you do is the hardest job. Like cold calling, for example, is like the hardest job in show business. I don't care mm-hmm. who you are. At one point in my career, when I was transitioning, right before I went to ASPS, actually, I was living on my now wife's couch, and I have no problem <laughs> being this humble. Had no money, had no nothing, and so I was—I took any job I could. And the job I took was setting appointments for a company that sold coupons in like an entertainment book. And for all of our young listeners out there, won't know what the hell I'm talking about, including <laughs> you probably. The entertainment book was a book of coupons that used to be sent out on a quarterly basis to like every household. In America, and you, you know, you, you, you get your coupon in there for your local hairdresser or whatever else. And so that's mm-hmm. essentially what I was doing, calling very small businesses every day and being told basically to screw off, trying to get them to buy ad space in this thing. So, but that being said, marketing is a is both a learn. It requires a, a not an entirely different skill set, but an expanded skill set. Whereas a marketer, I think, would have a much easier time if you were to drop them in on the sales team and be like, hey, go book meetings that they would, they understand process. And so like, just by the way their mind works, they know what selling is. They sell to many people all the time. Everybody sells. They're just selling to to a thousand people as opposed to one at a time. And so they would take that process orientation, their ability to be persuasive, and they just have to get comfortable with the tools at hand, whether it's talking on the phone or email or whatever it is. But yeah, I think marketers have a really easier time being on the sales team than, than going the other direction. Also, technology plays a huge role in that, right? Like marketers by their nature today are technologists in the sense that like we have to use all sorts of tools. It's why, by the way, which I find really funny, I can't tell you how often it is that marketers are the ones demoing CRMs for their sales team more often than someone <laughs> on the sales team. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's not not it's not like eighty ten or eighty twenty or anything like that, but it's it's definitely like sixty forty. Like sixty percent of the people we talk to are, are on the marketing side, and they play a big role in like choosing what technology to to use. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. It, well, would you would you rather, given based based on what you said, would you rather be the best salesperson in the world or the best marketer in the world? I would rather be the best head of growth in the world, which would require me <laughs> to be excellent at either or. What a cop out. Can I hedge my bet that way? Can I do that? <laughs> All right, I'll answer. I'll answer honestly. That's fair. Okay, like yeah. yeah. All yeah right, I'll right, answer yeah. honestly. Yeah, I would probably <laughs> rather be the best marketer in the world. It's where my it's where I'm at most at home. I love sales and I've come to love it in a particular way. But like, yeah, if I could choose not to do that necessarily all the time or a little bit less and just focus on sales strategy, then yeah, Mm -hmm. the marketing side allows me to be more creative. And that's the part about this that I, not that sales doesn't require creativity. It most certainly does, but I would probably rather be the best marketer in the world. Yeah. Who who do you think is currently the best marketer in the world? Oh, that's a great question. You'd have to categorize that a little differently because... And I, and I don't mean to be qualifying in this nature. Like, no, you're, that's, that's fair because there, there's so many different... Yeah, yeah, like from a lead generation perspective, like who's the best lead generator versus who's the best like brand marketer and all that kind of stuff. So I can tell you who I'm paying most attention to right now, and that's probably Dave Gearhart at Drift. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited to see him actually on Tuesday or Wednesday at G2 Crowds Conference in Chicago. The thing that's most interesting to me about what he... are two things. One, you'll hear him talk about writing a lot and why copywriting is important and what mm-hmm. that means. And then two, what he's managed to do with the Drift brand is super impressive. And it's all based on his personality and and the fact that it's actually not scalable. And so the way that he approaches personalization and building a brand and taking the team at Drift like and, and turning them almost into what somebody said once was like reality TV <laughs> marketing, which and I couldn't agree more, is like you want to buy Drift not because... Look, Drift is not the only chatbot in the world that like does the things that Drift does. Mm-hmm. Is the design nice? Is the UI nice? Absolutely. Their features are great. But Intercom does that way before both of those even existed. You know, Olark and Live Chat and all those companies. Like Live Chat is not a new idea. But that being said, he's turned it and built it into its own category, this whole conversational marketing category. And it's one of the most impressive, like impressive things I've seen like the meteoric rise of not only himself as like a marketing personality, but how he's managed to do both and drag the drift brand along with him and turn that in. what he and Dave Cancel are doing over there. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, we're let's, let's make a petition to get him on the show as well. Oh, and, Hey, uh, I'll tweet it. him. I'll ask. Yeah. And, uh, and if he does, and we'll have you on along as well and you can, uh, you can talk to him. That would be pretty fun. <laughs> 
I, I do. I don't want to go without asking about CRMs in particular, just because what it's one of those core skills that really separates an average marketer from a great one is mastering the CRM, mastering the tracking side of things. Something that not a lot of people are very adept at and really want to spend the time because it it can be a little advanced. It can be, but in terms of nutshell, I guess when you when you got there, how savvy were you with CRMs? Luckily, pretty savvy in the sense that one of the things like I talked about at Kaleidica that we did a lot, we worked with a lot of sales teams and and sometimes we worked with customers, you know, startups and then smaller companies that didn't really have a sales team. You know, they're founder driven types of scenarios. And so they didn't have any technology when it came to CRM. And so they came to us. And so I had I had both the opportunity to work with large enterprises and the tools that they were using, like Salesforce and then Pardot with on the marketing side and all that kind of stuff or Eloqua or Marketo or HubSpot even nowadays. And we also had the opportunity to like, and I loved this work, by the way, which is kind of what made me most excited to come to Nutshell and do it. I got the chance to like set up sales processes and build processes for burgeoning sales teams and choose the CRM I wanted, build the pipeline I wanted to, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed that process of trying to figure out how to take the ability to test and understand and and then turn that into a sales capacity. So I had some expertise when I came to nutshell as far as a user was concerned now when it comes to like building a crm or building software <laughs> i yeah no i was a little sure. little short just enough to be dangerous i suppose uh ultra dangerous you know in a room like to get myself into trouble but but and so learning about that process has been amazing while at nutshell watching your engineering team you know how we make decisions for roadmap all that kind of stuff has been great but yeah but i wasn't unfamiliar with crm i suppose when i got to nutshell sure most of us out here in the marketing world are, you know, we, we use HubSpot, we use Salesforce, we use we, Pardot, whatever it may be. What's it like to have your CRM just be your company? I love it. <laughs> I love it. Because well, here's the best part. Like now, while while the engineering team certainly does not like bend to my every will, if there's something I want it to do and it's not a huge lift, one of two things happens. Either somebody fixes it for me, which is amazing, and then our mm-hmm. customers get to like enjoy that benefit. So I, I get the chance to be their evangelist, like inside of Nutshell. And we try to we try to do a lot of customer-driven development when it comes to our product because we have the freedom to do so. Because we're not, you know, we, we've taken, you know, venture dollars, so to speak, but like we're a sustainable business, which is actually odd in the software space, right? Like we're not, we're not chasing valuation or any of that kind of stuff. So, but it, you know, it's fantastic. The other thing which I, I love about it is that I get to use the product that I sell every day and so i'm intimately familiar not only with its advantages but also its disadvantages so i think a lot of times if you're selling something that you don't use on a daily basis and people express frustration about it you're not keen to listen to that frustration or you might blow by it because your perception of the product you know is polished you know what i mean whereas my perception of of our product at nutshell well i believe and know it's absolutely an amazing crm super easy to use sophisticated enough to do big enterprise things with it. I also know where its limitations are. And so when people express that to me, I, I hear it automatically because like I, I use it every, you know, I use it every day. So sure. it, it keeps you honest, I suppose, is, is another thing about that. Very interesting. I have, I have a final question for you. Yeah. Not really controversial, but maybe, uh, maybe a little bit. So th- it's a, it's a question around a controversial term that I want to ask you kind of how you feel. A lot of people use this as it's kind of, Used to, it was trendy a year ago. It's still kind of trendy. Now it's died down a little bit, but a lot of people really hate it. A lot of people use it to try to make themselves seem great. But how do you feel about the concept, the term growth hacking or growth I knew it was hacker? coming. I knew yeah, it was coming. You knew it. So <laughs> it's definitely been bastardized to the point where the way people use it today is not the way the person who coined the phrase leveraged it originally so that'd be sean ellis right so like he's the father of of growth hacking would you agree with that in general yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely so and I, I was a beta user on qualaru and i god i love that thing from a lead gen perspective that's a whole <laughs> other conversation but the but anyway so i don't like it i'm not a huge fan of it because and i'll tell you i'll tell you why it creates the expectation that everybody has the opportunity to find one thing that's going to like 100x your growth and like that's just not true. It's that's fundamentally not true. And the the other thing, that, and it what I also think it does is it, it moves people away, particularly marketers, from the grind. So they're always hunting for this like silver bullet, yes. when like that's not the case. Which is by the way why I like Dave Gearhart so much. Is like you've never heard those words come out of his mouth. 
He's never mm-hmm. talking about growth. I mean, he, I'm sure he said it, but like, that's not where he focuses his thought leadership or his attention. He actually focuses on doing the things that don't scale, that aren't for quote sure. unquote, growth hacks. And like, yeah, because then that you can stand out. That's right. And and, and so the what I that's what I find. Is there a place for growth hacking that like the you know, the, the combination of technology plus marketing plus, you know, human behavior to accelerate your growth? Well, absolutely. And you do it in tiny ways in all of your campaigns, whether that's, you know, we're going to give away 100 T-shirts to the first 100 people that tweet this out or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to do that. But I think it what it does to people is makes them hunt, like, like I said before, for that silver bullet. And like the more you're looking for gold, the longer it's going to take you to find it almost. I know that kind of sounds odd, but but just focus on the work, like sell picks and shovels. Yep. Just do the yeah. things that you have to do on a daily basis. And then hopefully at some point you, you stumble onto something that you're like, wow, that's really working really well. And then you figure out how to scale it. On the agency side, that was the, the worst request I always received. And we did a lot of video work and I love doing video work. Make me a viral video. <laughs> I, I can't do that. I mean, I can try to do that, but like I cannot, I cannot make you a 30 second video and guarantee you that it's going to be the, you know, the dollar shave club phenomenon and like a million people are going to watch it by Tuesday. And so that's, you know, that's what I think people think growth hacking is. And like, that's not, not what it is to your audience, to everybody listening, just go read Sean Ellis's books. If you want to know what growth <laughs> hacking really is and what it takes. And there's some amazing strategies you can apply to your business and you'll get a much better sense of like what it means, sure. what it actually means, I guess, and how to apply it. Yeah. Just, I, I completely agree with you and a couple thoughts there to wrap up. Yeah. First, first and foremost, great companies have never been built on laziness, which is basically what growth <laughs> yeah, hacking yeah. is, is trying to be is like finding the one thing that's going to hundred X your business so quickly without having to do all the work. That's never going to result in a great company. I, I don't know of any that, that have, and then just like overall pe- people are just looking for shortcuts and, and ways to do things that, I mean, you ultimately what you said is true. You just have to put in the work and that's what's going to help you actually stand out and be great is not the fact that you came up with the best video, the a viral video one time. You have to repeat that. And as you repeat it and put in the work, that's what stands out and makes you great. So I, I agree with you 100% on your your thoughts on growth hacking. I thought I'd just check. I had a hunch that that probably <laughs> wouldn't be wouldn't be your jam. So <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to put that in there at the end. Yeah, I respect it. I respect it. And like I said, the original growth hacking thing, you if you're selling software in particular, right, which is like where it comes from. I mean, just so everybody knows, and uh, do we have time for this? If we don't, you can stop. Sure. Okay. No, go for it. Like, so the, I mean, the original thing that Sean Ellis did, right, he's at Dropbox. And like it starts to recognize that like the process of signing up essentially is an, an amazing opportunity to to for free get the product pushed out to more people. And so but but only Dropbox at this time has this opportunity. Right. Which is, oh, invite 10 of your friends to Dropbox and I'll give you an extra gig of storage. Well, like how hyper specific is that to, to mm-hmm. that product, that time and place? And today that would be that's laughable, right? Because like a gig of storage is nothing. And so it's all about it's all about timing. It's all about the the context in which you're doing something like that. And just because it works at one time doesn't mean it's going to work in another. Anyway, I could go on forever about that. But people sure. just have to remember how it started. And then like they'll recognize that, like, no, it's not one tweet, one viral video. That's not growth hacking. That's just good marketing. Definitely. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to talk about what you're building at Nutshell. Go ahead, kind of just talk about where people should go to visit. Uh, if you have anything else you're working on as well, now's kind of your time to take the floor, rolling awesome. out the red carpet for you. Oh, I appreciate that. I mean, I've really enjoyed our conversation. You know, I won't give people too much of the hard pitch on Nutshell. The only thing I'll say about it, there are 377 CRMs on the marketplace. One writer at TechCrunch called it the Hunger Games of software. I couldn't agree more. I wake up every day thinking if I could just mm, eliminate a few of my competitors, my day would be a little bit easier. But the fundamental difference between Nutshell and our competitors, if you're interested, is is it's sneaky powerful. And what I mean by that is like the number one problem with CRM software anywhere for any sales team is people using it. Look, let's be let's be honest about it. CRM is not sexy. It's no one like wakes up in the morning is like, oh, man, I can't wait to log into my CRM and log some activities. It's just not. So so nutshell, (laughs) what it does is get out of your way 
as a frontline sales rep enough to where like you don't realize you're working in it. And I do it every day and and I can speak to that. And that's awesome. On the strategy side, from a sales perspective, we've managed to package that simple framework. Every CRM has a framework, right? Like everyone has restrictions or constraints in some particular way. And those that don't, by the way, your Zoho's and Sugars of the world where you can customize anything, you'll never get anything done in there because like you'll never be done customizing it. You'll never be done figuring out how it works. So you want something that provides a framework, some constraint for you to be creative against. And that's what Nutshell does really well. And for sales managers, sales directors, and leaders, the reporting is crazy powerful. So your sales reps are going to be using it. They're going to be logging the data that you need. And then we've created a very easy way for you to extract learning from that data. So I would check it out at nutshell.com. I love our thought leadership blog. Got a shout out to my, you know, my guy, Ben Goldstein, who has built one of the best sales blogs that I've ever read. And that's uh, the sell to win blog. And that's just nutshell.com forward slash blog. And then the last plug I'll make is if you've enjoyed any part of this conversation, I do have my own podcast called Make the Logo Bigger for marketing directors and marketing leaders about how to kind of squeeze the every last drop out of your resources. You can find that on Stitcher, iTunes, all those, all the regular places you would find a podcast. Someone's got to solve that problem, by the way. There needs to be one place to go get a podcast. That's <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate it, Mike, for coming on. Again, Mike Carroll, the head of growth at Nutshell. Please go check out nutshell.com. Check out Mike. Follow him on LinkedIn. Follow him on Twitter. Follow Nutshell on the blog and everything. And check out his podcast as well. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thanks, Blake. It's been awesome, man. Yeah. And that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're a first-time listener or you've been at it since the beginning, please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Wherever you get your podcasts, we've got you covered anywhere you want. 